how do armies actually fight in fantasy settings? Basically, welcome to our spec fic. <laughs> Look, what I learned from Braveheart is uh, arrows cost money, the dead cost nothing. Send in the Irish. <laughs> Live from the Mundangerous Command Tent in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host, Yishin. And welcome to episode 233 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're growing our beards and writing letters home, because we're going to fantasy war. But first the party witnesses an historic event in the Gates of Morning campaign. And later, the field general leads from the front, or at least from the middle, in the Character Creation Forge. Shane, I'm glad we're going to fantasy war, because uh, it seems like America might be going to actual war. Yeah, so. no, I know. The timing of this is slightly unfortunate. Yeah. Unintentional. All right. This episode is brought to you by Cobalt Press. Do you love Cobalt Press 5th Edition Adventures? Oh, yeah. Well, now you can get some of their best on fantasy grounds. Like Courts of the Shadow Fae, which is an adventure for 7th to 10th level characters that contains 100 NPCs, a map with more than 60 locations of the courts, and more than 40 combat and role-playing encounters. Courts of the Shadow Fae takes you from the mortal world to the heart of shadow. Or there's Necropolis of the Mailed Fist, a punishing one-session tournament dungeon for 8th-level characters. Monsters and constructs guarding the Necropolis can overwhelm the careless or unweary. The traps and hazards protecting its relics can slay an adventurer who makes a single misstep. Curses are everywhere, along with dangers that can destroy magic items. That's actually the most terrifying part, is destroying magic items. Oh, yeah, no, bring a one-shot character. <laughs> <laughs> right? Dragon, sure, I'll fight a dragon. A rust monster, never mind. I'm closing this door and leaving. Yeah, hard pass. <laughs> uh, eighth level is actually really nice for this, too, because, like, um, you have abilities, but you're not impervious. Right, right. All right, so everything you need to play is loaded up and ready to go in a sleek virtual table. So find out more at fantasygrounds.com and tell them DSPN sent you. So, Ishan, where are we in the Gates of Morning campaign? The Gates of Morning campaign is our 5th edition D&D game set in Eberron, a sequel of sorts to the original Morning Glory campaign. And on the Day of Morning, along a barren stretch of a Carnathy battlefield, the party is fighting for their lives. So we've blasted through the undead lines, mm -hmm. uh, and along with a group of refugees and a squad of Ondarian soldiers, we have taken refuge inside a House Jurasco Enclave. That's the halfling mark of healing. Yep. Now, they're technically neutral in the war, as are all the other dragon-marked houses, but the party has been able to convince Wilmo, the Enclave's leader, to shelter them at least for a little while. So the group rests for a short time in these very peaceful environs. Like, this is... a uh, an enclave of the house of healing and typically when it's not basically two miles away from a massive battlefield it's a place where people will come to convalesce and you know they like stroll through gardens and uh rehabilitation rooms and you know there are spas and and baths around right now though there isn't really anyone uh being healed other than the refugees in the party so halflings uh tend to their wounds and then you can see in the distance they're sort of like tending to like medicinal herbs until Wilmo asks us to uh, join her at the top of the Enclave Tower to witness something strange. 
They climb several hundred feet up to this tower, the tallest structure uh, in the entire enclave. And they can see all around the enclave, like right on the, the perimeter, the Carnathian dead that they were able to escape have now followed them and are gathered around. They're milling about, almost like they're, they're nervous, but they don't cross the arcane glyph that marks the limit of the property. And then Lenore spies a commotion far to the south, above Metrol, the capital of Seer. There is a gout of flame that must be hundreds of feet high jetting up from the ground, and then small flying figures begin to circle high in the air above the city. And then, as they all watch in horror, the entire nation of Seer, which is basically all of the land to the south of them, evaporates in a flash of light that blinds both Lenore and Decimus. And the entire enclave begins to shake, the ground splits open and unleashes terrible arcane energies, and the whole compound is engulfed in miasmic gases and necromantic surges. Outside the edge of the compound, all of the Carnathi undead massed outside collapse as one, destroyed in what seems to be this the wake of like this arcane surge coming from Seer. The compound is also destroyed, and the massive tower that they are all standing on crumbles beneath their feet. Yeah, tower falls, everyone dies. <laughs> and that's how we spent the day of mourning. <laughs> and we'll find out what happens next, next week. So this week, we are going to talk about uh, fantasy warfare. So we should start with a disclaimer here. Neither of us served in the military, and especially not in the medieval military uh and we are also not military historians so the objective here isn't to make rpgs true to life the objective is to make rpgs true to fiction yeah because we've read a lot of military fiction yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) and we've read a lot of fantastical military fiction yeah and and like it's a big theme right like that's the whole whole kind of thing behind D&D, right is like it started from tabletop war games and then it became okay i don't care about this whole squad of people i only care about this one person right right and like be honest people who want uh more military in their fantasy aren't usually like if they're honest with themselves saying i want it to be just like actually being on the battlefield right, right. it's like all right i know people who've actually been in the military and they play a lot of D and they're like I, I don't i don't want it to be exactly the same because yeah. like, i didn't really enjoy that experience i'm playing this because it's fantasy right also like especially in this period like being in the military meant that you were conscripted from your farm that you didn't own that you worked for uh the local lord right because it was feudal um then you were basically handed a pike and then you were told to march for miles and miles on end uh with poor supplies like poor rations uh and then at some point you would line up in a big line uh, and then run at another group of people and probably die. And if you didn't, you got paid like one coin for it. And then you got sent back to your home, uh, hopefully back to your family. Uh, so, yeah, it's basically only war. That's that's the most realistic yeah, exactly. <laughs> medieval fantasy war. <laughs> so I think what we want to do here, kind of talk about, you know, given that war is a common theme, how do armies actually fight in fantasy settings? Like basically, welcome to our spec fic. <laughs> Look, what I learned from Braveheart is uh, arrows cost money. The dead cost nothing. Send in the Irish. <laughs> All right. So in order to sort of get into the nitty gritty of this, uh, usually in, in fantasy where you're moving, like it's a high level, right? You're moving 
units rather than necessarily uh, single individuals, right? Yeah, and I, I think like when we when we think of like the epic Game of Thrones battle, right? Um, or like even going back to like Troy, right? Or or something in that period, like the Hellenistic period is still very much like. I think in the realm of like D and D warfare. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, so like when you think about that, like you need to think about like what kinds of troops are involved in the battle. Um, and then like, how do commanders of the time use those troops? So like starting with infantry, which is of course people on foot, um, you've got your like rank and file troops. They're, you know, the barely trained peasants who have pikes or spears, um, that are marching because of fealty to a Lord and not because they really want to be there. Right. On the other side, often enemies, you'll have, you know, just hordes of orcs and goblins who are poorly armed and poorly armored. Of course, you might also be leading these particular troops, too, depending. Exactly. Uh, They're there to, like, do the bulk of the fighting and most of the dying. Right. The abstracted fighting and then uh, maybe abstracted dying. Right. And then I think you also have, like, an elite tier of of your infantry as well right like these are the professional soldiers the adventurers you know like sort of the um the more terrifying monsters right the ogres or giants right like they are they're more powerful they're there to like reinforce the troops so they don't break morale and flee um they take on the most difficult or specialized missions like they're the ones who are responsible for like you know make sure that the castle gate is open Right. Um, or make sure that the castle gate doesn't open. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think the Lord of the Rings movies actually did a good job of this showing different types of like orcs and goblins. And, you know, so they're in the mines of Moria and there's hordes of goblins and oh, no, OK, it's small, but they've got pointy bits and like they're definitely going to overwhelm us. And then what happens? In comes the cave troll, the elite. Uh-huh. Like, they have a cave troll. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, OK, great. Let's kill that one first. Or, exactly. or do we just run? I think we run away. Right. <laughs> A lot of times, I think in the real world, like the professional soldiers became like the uh, the commanders um, of these different companies, right? So you would have a professional soldier leading a rabble of conscripts. Yeah, and it's interesting if you do want to modernize this a little bit. These days, armies are basically professional, so right. the skill level of a professional soldier in medieval times is probably what you're getting from even just line infantry these days, right? Of course, we, we also tend not to just line up on two sides of a battlefield and run at each other. So Yeah, hopefully like, not. It's, it's a little different these right. days. Fix bayonets. <laughs> right. <laughs> so not everyone runs on foot. No, you also have cavalry, which were sort of the, uh, the truly terrifying troops of the medieval period. These are your knights on horsebacks, your orcs on uh, wargs. You know your uh, your your mounted combatants. They might even be flying mounted combatants, right? Yeah. But they they have they're quick, they're maneuverable. They have a big advantage versus infantry. Uh, right. This is your um, your Pegasus troops, right? Your your Nazgul. <laughs> yeah, I mean anyone mounted on a dragon. <laughs> that, that's everybody. It's everybody. Well, this is, ideally, it's dragon fighting, right? <laughs> Um, a lot of times they're tasked with flanking or harassing troops. Um, you know, they, they tend to have that big advantage and, and you basically want to put them in a place where they get the most value out of that. So it's always better. Like if you have a line of pikemen, um, like you want to attack them from the side. So they're not able to set their pikes against you, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you can, you can kite, right. You do ride by attacks or fly by attacks. Of course, 
cavalry, no matter what kind, should be looking out for the archers. Uh-huh. Now, in medieval times, this usually means longbows, uh, which actually will mean trained troops who uh, know what they're doing, who stay really far back, uh, away from the front lines, and just rain death from above. Yeah, so typically, right, this is always the heel turn for one side or the other. Mm -hmm. But once the infantry are engaged, right, like once the two lines from either side have met, you stop shooting your arrows because you don't want to kill your own men. Uh, But, of course, the evil side will invariably say, keep firing, and then just kill everybody. Right. Sir, we'll hit our own men. Do it. You can also get a, like infantry version or like a, a rabble conscripted peasant version of archers if uh, crossbows are available because those uh, require uh, much less skill to actually wield yeah but they don't have the distance typically that's right? true like, and you, and they're expensive yeah like they're they're a lot harder like certainly in medieval times and again like a fantasy world like whatever right um money is always fungible in fantasy worlds and magic is a thing so like you certainly could have that but i think the the main thing is you just want to be blindly shooting into the air as many arrows as you can um and cause as much pain and and death as you possibly could well i don't think arrows are the way to cause as much pain and death from the air as you can well, <laughs> are you referring to artillery? I think I might be. <laughs> okay. So in in the modern era, of course, these are like uh, long range um, explosives, typically, you know, uh, bombs and cannons and things like that. But uh, in the fantasy period, this is more like catapults or trebuchets or ballista, which um, are, are sort of just weapons of fear, right? Um, in a lot of ways. Uh, but also you have like, offensive mages right your evoker wizard your fire sorcerer even like if you have a dragon your dragon is probably behaving more as artillery mm-hmm. than as like cavalry right like they're strafing the battlefield with massive like cones of fire breath uh and just melting the troops right and not typically focused on anyone in particular right like like you said just strafing just right. being like all right i'm gonna make a pass i'm gonna hit whoever i happen to hit right i want to hit as many as possible mm-hmm. uh, and this is one thing that i think we both really like about eberron is it's really grounded in like the last war which only ended a few years ago but uh, it it applies magic logically to warfare so your artillery often was um either like something created by an artificer like some sort of like magical um catapult or or ballistae, or it really just was like let's send out two mages and they're just casting fireball yeah yeah yeah. i I, well so that's interesting because like a normal ballista right like isn't really a troop weapon because it's not accurate enough to kill troops individually and it doesn't fire often enough to make a huge impact right like same with like a trebuchet or a catapult um like those are more siege weapons right knocking down walls right right you can't move your city out of the way exactly um so you bring them in case there are walls that you need to deal with right or, and you assemble them as you need them but like in in eberron like we just kind of had that that first adventure involved an arcane ballista which shot at troop mowing down speed it was basically a machine gun right right a fireball machine gun yeah and, and so that's kind of the like that's where you get magic involved where those things can can literally do devastating damage they can be real weapons of shock and awe um they can break morale long before they like eliminate every last soldier yeah um in lower magic settings this can just be the wizard right there is a wizard (laughs) yes exactly and having a wizard is enough often to 
decide you don't want to present combat today. Right. Um, they're calling down lightning bolts. <laughs> they have the weather on their side. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Can't control the weather. Uh, actually, turns out they can. <laughs> Well, so let's talk about that. So I think the last tier of kind of troops to consider uh, are support units, right? So that that includes sort of the traditional historical troop support, which are your um, your medics, your drummers and buglers, your priests, right? Like the, the people who are responsible for um, conveying information across the battlefield, as well as like tending to the wounded or the dying, don't overlook these troops at all. Um, one, they're they're going to be underfoot. So you know, if artillery is just you know dropping heavy fire, or there's a rain of arrows, there's just as much chance that a medic or like the drummer boy gets hit. Right. You know, and those are like meaningful things that happen. Uh, but at the same time, like I, I I always love like that that image and even just the mechanical difficulty of you know having the the standard bearer right like. I don't have a shield because I'm holding onto a giant flag. Yeah. And that's important. Uh, and it might take negative, sure, but the whole army is getting bonuses from this. Exactly. And, like, that's important for morale reasons, right? Mm-hmm. Like, the, the regiment's colors are sort of that point of pride and, and like, that sort of um, the way that, like, armies counted coup, um, even into, like, the Napoleonic era, right? Um but then also, like, they're incredibly important for commanders because you need to know, like, what units are where. Mm-hmm. Like, which company is down there? Which regiment is down there? Are those, like, the the stern and, and trustworthy Hessians or are those the flighty and, and unreliable Irish? You know, is that, a, is that a company of Scottish Highlanders or is that a company of, like, conscripted peasants? Right. And, you know, in, like, um, the Trojan War, you don't have a spyglass. You, you can't, like you know, peer down from like a a nearby mountaintop. You need to see flags. Right, exactly. Um, And then likewise, like, you know, if those colors fall, um, the troops of that regiment don't know where to rally, Mm -hmm. right? They don't know where they're supposed to be. uh, And they they might just lose morale. They might break when they see their colors fall or or if they can't find their colors on the field. Mm -hmm. This is actually one of my favorite moments in like fiction or a game is someone's like i drop my shield or like i drop my weapons forget this and and i lift the standard that's yeah. what i do i mean we immortalize that at like the battle of iwo jima, iwo jima right? yeah uh-huh. <laughs> like it, it wasn't a standard it was the american flag but still like that that the flag has meaning to the troops fighting right, right. Mm-hmm. um and like in fantasy it's like mythical meaning like magical meaning to the troops who are fighting mm-hmm uh, so speaking of that, in a fantasy game, right, a lot of support is going to be magical. You have actual, like, healers who, like, the medic may actually just, like, knit bones together. Yeah, or mask your wounds. <laughs> right. But you can also have, like, defensive mages who are casting illusion spells or, like, um, creating trenches out of out of thin air, just, like, digging them immediately, you know, uh, throwing up walls of stone. Right. Um, or, or, like, you know, abjuration wizards are, are there to cast magical protection right like so if you have two relatively untrained groups of troops the ones who have slightly higher magical ac tend to be the ones who win that fight yeah i love again that it's an eberron scenario where you basically have uh, an artificer embedded with um the the troop who is basically maintaining the shields yeah exactly or like the the magical shields it's it's almost like uh ship to ship combat in space right 
Um, and then another important thing uh, for magical support is, of course, counterspell, mm-hmm. right? Like, that's sort of the excuse to have your, like, range is the reason that your mages wade into combat at all. Um, you know, they, they have to stay in range to get their spells useful. But counterspell is the way that your mages protect your troops. So you have to get a little bit closer. Um, that puts some of your most valuable targets, uh, your most valuable soldiers at risk mm-hmm. uh, and opens up targets for say a enterprising young band of adventurers looking to make a name for themselves (laughs) (laughs) who suddenly confront the uh, enemy general and now everyone makes way exactly (laughs) all right so we've gotten into this a little bit but let's talk about tactics okay so let's talk about like sort of the simple medieval fictional tactics Uh, i have no idea if this is how armies actually fought but that's how they fight in my mind and that's what we're going with so you basically like you know you have two armies on either side of a battlefield uh they present each other um the infantry lines up on either side right this is your like uh ranks and files you know there's like six rows of troops arrayed uh you might have like a commander on horseback riding along the line shouting at the men you know uh words of wisdom or inspirational messages or whatever it is right uh and then behind them you have your rows of archers who are uh, sitting with the artillery and just trying to soften up the enemy as soon as they start to advance. Uh, And so, you know, you have your drum start and your bugles call and your uh, and your leaders call and everybody starts moving forward towards each other kind of slowly and and marching in step right Uh, as they get pelted with arrows, hopefully holding up their shields. Uh, And eventually you get to like, I don't know, like, 30 yards, 50 yards, and then each side charges, right? And it's it's both both sets of soldiers running straight at each other with weapons and crashing into each other, right? This is the blood and the guts and the dying face down in the mud and you're hitting one person with a shield and getting run through with a spear and, and all of that sort of thing. Yeah, this is like all of the uh, combat passages in the Iliad. Exactly. <laughs> Which is almost like it's so much just spear goes through the bottom of someone's tongue and then like into someone's eye and then this person's brain explodes, you know, like the it's it's the it's the hand to hand fighting. Right. It's the senseless and pointless and uncontrolled fighting. Right. Right. It is the it is the the battle of wills as much as it is, as it is the battle of arms. Um, and then once you get everybody engaged in this big nasty scrum, like that's when you have cavalry streaming in, right? Like that's when they attack from the sides or they flank around into the archers or, or they do whatever. Like this is where the trick happens, uh, invariably in the film that the, the unit you didn't know was there now comes in from an odd angle, um, and tips the battle in one side's favor. This is where the party's plan comes to fruition, right? Right. Or, okay, we're charging, or they're charging, they're charging. Uh, now we phalanx, right? Now we turtle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, if you could do it, you should phalanx. Oh, yes. <laughs> it just, it takes a lot of work and a lot of training. Like, like you would love to fight as, like, the Myrmidons and their little, like, turtle shield, right? Like, but good luck doing it if you if you're a peasant who just picked up his pike and marched 600 miles to be here that's why we have the uh the puppet master telepath yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) so speaking of flanking right like commanders are always focused on their flanks like they typically have like a left a right and then the main strength is in the middle uh and they always want to make sure that they're not getting blindsided by an attack from some unexpected direction where their troops aren't really like set up to take the battle Mm -hmm. um 
you know, the idea being like, if six people run up to one person, that person dies. But if six people run up to six people, you have a chance. Right. So commanders are all always making a determination about which flank is the most vulnerable and then maneuvering their best troops to put them on the most vulnerable flank. Of course, that means then that's not your most vulnerable flank. <laughs> your right. other flank that was not the most vulnerable is now. Exactly. But like, you know, they're, they're always looking to like, I want to put my most reliable troops in the place where I where I don't want to have to think about it. <laughs> you know, like I want to make sure that like my 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 dwarven elites are over there on my right flank so that I never have to worry about what's happening over there because I know they'll carry the day. Right. Dwarven defenders hold the line. So I put them on the bridge. Exactly. <laughs> so what does make a flank vulnerable? So I think wide open terrain is one of them. Um, this makes it easy for cavalry maneuvers it makes it uh vulnerable to archers for longer it uh you know like artillery becomes a problem uh if it's wide open over there you got to make sure you've got enough troops to hold it if you get thoroughly attacked Mm -hmm. a flank could just be vulnerable because it is difficult to hold maybe that is terrain Uh, it could also be that you know troops are confined and and aren't able to maneuver very well yeah like you know, on our right, uh, to our front is desert. To our right is quicksand. <laughs> like, it might be harder to fight in quicksand. And this is where, like, the fantasy elements come into play, right? Like, in real life, if there's quicksand on your flank, probably people aren't attacking from that way. Or at least certainly the cavalry aren't. But right. if they're on phantom steeds, great. They're coming right across the quicksand. Yeah, exactly. Or, like, you know, you might completely ignore that flank because you know they can't march through... Uh, quicksand or you might completely ignore that forest because you know the Germans can't put tanks through that forest (laughs) but the elves can (laughs) (laughs) basically do the opposite of the French in every move (laughs) Um, and then I think the other thing that commanders look at is like if I lose this flank what happens to my army right so if, if holding the right side of the line uh, if the enemy takes that, would they have an advantageous position on the rest of my army? Like, would they have high ground or cover or something like that where we wouldn't be able to win the day? Well, then that instantly, like, that becomes their most attractive target. Therefore, I need to defend it most heavily. Everybody knows you can't overcome high ground. Exactly. Unless you're Obi-Wan. <laughs> right. <laughs> So we've already been doing this a bit, and I think this is probably one of the main reasons why we don't try to stick solely to like verisimilitude when we're talking about medieval combat but you need to consider how magic changes all of this and all of these considerations yeah and the the first and most i don't know i think obvious one is there's just gonna be more meat for the grinder here right like if an entire company can be wiped out by a single spell or a single dragon's breath like (laughs) good night the losses will be substantial yeah, because like a regular soldier is still on a medieval level, but when you introduce, you know, fireballs and dragons, you're basically talking about the fantasy equivalent of modern weaponry. Yeah, exactly. Like call in an airstrike and see what that does to your your company of pikemen. Right. <laughs> like they don't have a chance, you know. Uh and you know, something traditional fantasy like D&D has so many area of effect spells because they're usually focused on like attacking two or three big bad monsters. 
Right. But if you like do the math on those areas, a fireball can wipe out a whole company. Yeah. Um, and it, like it's not clear to me, right, how you would necessarily change your tactics because of that. Like you can't simply spread out further, right? Like if if you spread out your rank and file, well then anybody mounted is going to decimate your troops anyway Mm -hmm. like you have to keep tight ranks to protect against the like mortal threats that face you uh you need to find other ways to deal with the supernatural threats right and that might be having supernatural threats on your side as well exactly (laughs) uh geeking the mage exactly right shoot the guy in the robes or i think this is a pretty common trope is like only the bad guys have magic Mm -hmm. so like they have the dragons they have like you know, two terrible uh, wizards or sorcerers. Uh, this is basically where you pull out your adventuring party. Exactly. Um, also, keep in mind, like you have supernatural fear and magical fear um, that becomes a factor here, in addition to just the normal horror of warfare. So, uh, even the hardest and most veteran soldiers could break under those terms. Right. Anybody can fail a saving throw, but it's not all bad for. Uh, the line troops because magic can also strengthen them you'll get magical enhancements like on your weapons and your armor Uh, magical defenses and healing are going to reduce the value of having high quality equipment or training Mm -hmm. it helps to fight if you know that if you can just get through this battle and your side can win you are going to get healed back basically to like full health tomorrow right then yeah you'll keep pushing through okay I like I got stabbed in the in the shoulder um or or like you know in the gut a, a gut wound in like the real world meant you were definitely going to die and you were going to die poorly oh like any wound meant you were going to die and die oh, yeah, poorly yeah. because it was going to be gangrene right? <laughs> the infection like, was going to be terrible unless you yeah. got lopped off properly <laughs> right <laughs> uh but yeah if, if you know that there's a medic back at the tent who can like heal you and send you back to your farm you'll fight all the harder mm-hmm um, and then likewise, like if you are a good soldier already, like that type of magical aid and enhancement can turn you into like a juggernaut yourself, right? So you might have like uh, a group of elite knights might be further elitened, I guess, by having <laughs> like, you know, magical weapons and magical armor and, and like those types of protections and, and might even have like a mage riding with them to continually provide that. Right. Um, they might be that much harder to take down. Yeah, this is up and down the line. Like, you might end up in basically a magical tank or, like, Eberron has the Warforged Colossi now where mm-hmm. you're probably just pulling levers and pushing buttons. Right. Uh, but a a regular peasant who gets their hands on Excalibur is still going to wreck shit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that's because, you know, Excalibur rules. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> um, I think magic also introduces the idea of, like, these ever shifting battlefields like physically shaping the terrain to their will right we mentioned wall of stone but you can make walls of flame that suddenly appear underneath people's feet right walls of force like imagine like just throwing up a wall of force in front of the enemy mage and his fireball only goes 30 feet and now hits himself yep (laughs) got him (laughs) uh you can turn stone into mud or essentially uh, quicksand you can change the weather quickly and drastically yeah i mean like any of like web or um entanglement like even those low level spells can like can just win your comp or like win your squad their battle right because 
that's enough of an advantage uh, in the maelstrom around you. Yeah, I think people to use like a, a D&D example, I, I often see people being like, why is control weather an 8th level spell? I don't really get it. But a single spell can turn any battlefield into Russia in the winter. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, the, like you might start on a nice and sunny day, and it might become like a very, very terrible storm, followed by a literal hurricane, followed by Russian winter, all in the course of a couple minutes. Right. Uh, what happened to the Armada? Oh, it sank. Right. Tsunami. I sank it. <laughs> <laughs> How many battles have been turned by weather? So many historically. All right. So with magic in play, intelligence is basically everything. Yeah. We haven't even mentioned like the possibility of illusion yet. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, we had that actually in one of our games where one of the uh, in our Dark Sun game where the like mercenary companies like Master Wizard uh, used illusion to misrepresent our troop quality. Yeah. Think about even simple things like disguise self as the enemy general mm-hmm. or disguise voice. Right. Like, I don't need to look like you. I just need to sound like you as my voice booms out across the battlefield, giving you orders. Well, that's the thing, too, is like just simple things like thaumaturgy, right? Like you can now relay orders much easier. Like you have multiple ways to fall back. Uh, like if you're, you know, if you can't hear the drums and you can't hear the the bugles, like you might just hear a magically enhanced voice in your head from your leader telling you exactly where to go or what to do. Yeah, feints, uh, all of these kinds of tricks. Think how much maneuverability teleport adds and how much you need to consider that if you know that your uh, enemy can teleport. Right. You know, what looks like the weakest side of your formation might actually be like under an illusion and there's twice as many troops there as you're able to see. Or when you when you crash into them, it turns out that was a cliff. Yeah. Or like I, the, the other one that I really like is like because it's, it's relatively simple and low level. It's just like make a disorganized rabble appear to be like elite shock troops, right? Like you don't want to engage these guys because they look bad. Um, but instead, like all you've done is put like one lousy company over there. And they weren't going to do anything in the battle anyway, because the goal here is to force your opponent into making a mistake and then, you know, capitalize on that mistake. All right. So in addition to troops, you often have high level champions who take the battlefield, especially in like, uh, you know, ancient forms of combat. Yeah. These are uh, your named characters with plot armor. And that plot armor is very important because this is not how real armies fight. (laughs) Or, well, this is how real kings sometimes died. (laughs) Well, right. (laughs) I I will actually take the battlefield. (laughs) The story uh, component here is like the king or the queen, the commander, the general, um, or like the the champion, right? Goliath, uh, Achilles actually take the field and everybody knows that they have entered the fray. Yeah, right? Like Achilles and Ajax, right? Or, oh, wait, they didn't fight, did they? What's his name in Achilles' armor? Patroclus. That's right. But the idea here uh, is when they wade into the fray of battle, they just leave a swath of destruction, right? Until they run into another champion who is also carving out their own swath of destruction. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then, like, they have to fight as a proxy for the rest of the army. Right. Like, Achilles might get fireballed, but that doesn't matter. He's Achilles. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you didn't target his uh, his heel with that fireball. So and like likewise, like Achilles doesn't just get critted to death because two hundred troops turn on him and all take one swing, 
right? Like that doesn't happen. Like once Achilles, um, who does he face off with? Hector. Once Achilles faces Hector, like suddenly nobody is getting involved in that fight, right? Like they, they basically form a big circle around them and start cheering them on. Right. Uh, as, as they fight as individuals, you know, like, um, same thing like uh, in Lord of the Rings, right? Like that opening scene where Sauron is like wading through the battlefield. Like he just like kind of kills anything anything around him until that one brave soldier confronts him, um, and then it's the two of them fighting one on one in the midst of this massive ten thousand person battle. Yeah, it is fine to hand wave rules here and be like, uh, yes, those arrows definitely don't do anything to Sauron. You know, and right. it doesn't matter how many times you crit. And, you know, sometimes that's covered in the rules like oh, immune to non-magical weapons or whatever. Right. But a moment like that should be impressive. Uh, and people probably actually do just shrink back when like the Dark Lord takes the field and only Isildur is the one who can like handle them in single combat. I, I knew you knew his name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because he betrayed us all by not destroying the ring. <laughs> I think... If they're fighting as a proxy, right, like what happens is when a champion falls, usually the battle ends, mm-hmm. right? Or if, if the battle doesn't end, like the, the tides of battle turn significantly. Um, and you can explain this in the game as like fate intervening to bolster the army or just like, um, you know, a massive morale swing. Like suddenly like troops that were overmatched are now just, you know, kind of inspired to do better. Um, there could be like an imag- uh, magical or prophetical explanation for why this happens, but the point is when the champion falls, right? Like the battle, the battle is better for the side that wins. Yeah, I kind of like the divine intervention that often shows up in these stories. Like in the Trojan War, like the gods, like sort of pop in and out, right? They're like, oh no, actually, I don't want this person to die, and now I'm out, right? They're, they don't stand around and start like slashing people with fiery swords. They're just like, I'm going to move this just a little bit over here. I'm going to turn this around. Yeah, they're like managers in like a wrestling match. Yeah, totally. <laughs> like I can't I can't directly influence the outcome, but I can just kind of like, you know, trip a guy maybe right before he does his big move. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and then Venus is like, uh, seems like they're going to lose. I'm going to get my family out of here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. So this is cool and it sounds like an awesome scrum. Uh, but where did the PCs actually fit into all of this? So they could be commanders, Mm -hmm. right? They could be directing the army and the different troop formations within the army, or or they could each, you know, have some piece of the army that they control and they're responsible for the performance of that group. Yeah. And this is going to be like a a pretty skill oriented uh, piece of the session because like just having one extra person with one extra sword isn't actually going to matter that much on the battlefield, no matter how good you are. Right. Um, Like you said, or like I said, like, if a PC just wades into the battlefield in this in this framework, they just get critted to death by, you know, the first 20 attacks, one of them will be a crit, and eventually you'll die. Well, that's why I named myself Achilles. Uh-huh. Um, I think if you use this kind of framework, like, you're highlighting the burden of command, right? Like, having to make difficult decisions, um, having to command troops that are invariably going to die, like, maybe sacrificing men for a, a greater purpose, right? I would say be wary of letting some players sort of step back from this because they're saying, oh, my character isn't like a a good general. There are always going to be reasons that they're sort of forced into a command position or they may have like a a special ability or skill or title that sort of requires them to be the one to take part in uh, leading. 
Right. We uh we did this in in Dynasty Unwarranted, right? Like on uh on Gontelgrim, you were kind of forced to fix the problem of the imp- the uh like local militia army uh so that they could win their battle against the orcs. So you you all had to like go out and just fix problems in the army. Uh and, and a lot of you ended up commanding from the front. Others were busy like sorting out logistics or whatever. <laughs> Which you know is command staff necessity right (laughs) you might also find yourself as troops uh in the army uh if you're low level characters like you could be part of a unit or like all you know six or four player characters might be like an elite unit themselves that operates as just them and as low level characters maybe this is darwinian character creation like you you are fighting and hopefully surviving and maybe are like one of the very few survivors and like that's why you're the party or it could be like you know you're all level three and everyone else is level one and pretty quickly everybody else dies and now you are the ones remaining right and you you've got to like complete some objective uh like recover something or, or make sure that this like uh you know sacred ground is not defiled or something like that mm-hmm um, and here you want to like highlight the senselessness of battle and, and how chaotic it is and how war is hell, right? Like how, uh, as you advance, like a spell goes off and then suddenly the six men next to you are gone. Hopefully people that, uh, you just had a nice conversation with. Right. I- ideally you set them up that way. Yeah. Like, oh, they have families. They have <laughs> names. <laughs> they had names. And Hey, you are the ones who came up with those names. Right. <laughs> And we've alluded to this before, but the party could just be sent on a special mission, right? While the battle is raging and all of this is going on around them, the party needs to do something else very important. So I think this works better if you have kind of mid-level characters, right? Where the battle is a backdrop for what is otherwise, like, mostly a typical adventure, right? Like, um, you know, something needs to be done near the battle, but not actually as part of the battle, right? Like maybe that's an assassination or maybe that's um, like stealing something or kidnapping somebody, right? It could be, um, you know, setting off like an avalanche that will trap the enemy troops, something like that. Um, but the idea being like, you're highlighting that the fate of a nation or the fate of, of this whole collective of an army is in the hands of just a few brave individuals, you're right. These small people are going to have a, a major impact. You can even do this in the middle of the scrum where part of the combat is them wading through this like war as hell, like troops on the ground battle and, you know, taking like random damage here and there. And like, there's no real way to predict how well they're going to be faring when they come out on the other side or whether all the equipment they brought with them is still going to be functioning. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, they get to like the clearing where space has been made because like the war truck has killed everybody near it. And like, they're the ones who have to sabotage it or stop it somehow. Yeah. Or like this happens when, especially when you get like, like you said, geek the mage, right? Like. The, those mages are are killing us like we cannot survive this if somebody doesn't get to those mages like you party go like mm-hmm. <laughs> kill that mage let us win like let us win the day right like that sort of stuff just small things like that can have major impacts on on the battle and then players can be like oh i know how to do this <laughs> yeah i was born for this <laughs> i thought you'd never ask <laughs> 
yeah, in addition to the mage, it could just be the other champion, right? You're the only ones who even have a chance of like stopping this Goliath over here or this Colossus or whatever it is, whatever it might be. I mean, you might just be the champions yourselves, mm-hmm. right? Like you could literally be like known characters within your army that are, are there to like ensure that you win. Um, and you have to wade into the battle, find your foe and like win it by proxy for your army. This works best if the characters are high level and it's a nice way to include them in these like scrum battles because at this point, you know, whatever, level 17 D&D characters aren't going to be felled by like conventional weaponry. Right. Uh, but you do want to make sure that you're highlighting the awesome power of not only the opponent, right? Because it should be terrifying and, and there should be trepidation on the part of the party. But the PCs also need a chance to shine in this moment. Like they're the only ones who can go out there. The regular troops, the line troops, and even like hardened veterans are looking at them maybe with a sense of awe or even fear and being like, how how are you even doing this? Yeah, I mean like the fourth edition MOOC rule was perfect for this, mm-hmm. right? Of like cool like it doesn't matter what this enemy soldier looks like you cut them down with one hit point right like that's it to you like they're nothing but when you approach this champion um and and it might be like kind of like you right it could be the you know three nazgul as opposed to you know six pcs or whatever or it could actually be like kind of a series of one-on-one type fights like whatever you do when you face them you you are on equal footing now right or or maybe even just a little disadvantage but like Mm -hmm. the the power that you wield is like unfathomable to the thousands of people around you which i mean i think is fair you know you get to like 17th level like that is pretty unfathomable everywhere except for uh, forgotten realms i mean yeah you're basically demigods walking the earth (laughs) yeah exactly live it up a little bit you know So I think in almost any campaign, you can find some time where there is going to be warfare. Like I'm thinking about almost every party that I have played in or like run through an adventure. They have made decisions that probably will cause a war. Uh Uh-huh. Like this is actually kind of like a good one or two sessions to have after they have completely screwed up diplomatic negotiations. Yeah, right. Like... Cool, we march for war. You're marching with us. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) At the front. (laughs) You made your bed. Time to lie in it. (laughs) I I specifically didn't want to talk about mass combat rules, right? Because I don't think mass combat rules are actually all that important to, like, making warfare feel, like, visceral and and feel, like, important in an RPG. Like, this, this is about, like, what are you trying to get fictionally out of your warfare, right? Not how you resolve the like the ones and the plus ones and plus twos of like this type of troop versus this type of troop. Yeah, mostly here that won't matter. Um, probably the most important thing you're doing here is giving a speech. Yeah, and exactly. making some tactical decisions, or maybe casting a few spells. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Do you hear that, Ishan? Uh, it's just fireball after fireball. It's a fireball Gatling gun wow this is definitely going to turn the tide of the war well then it's time to move on to the character creation forge and find out which regiment's coming up next to die in the meat grinder but before we do that let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us we do love hearing from you you can tweet at shane at mundangerous that's m-u-n dangerous and you can tweet at ishan at evil sans carne that's malice minus meat and you can tweet at the show at tpt cast you can also email us at totalpartythrill at gmail.com 
And you can find us on the web at www.totalpartythrill.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at Total Party Thrill. And join the conversation on Discord. There's a link in the show notes. Are you looking for a great story? Do you love Star Wars? Do you like podcasts? You said yes to any of these? Check out the Redemption Podcast. Well, I have less in my head than you do normally, probably. You haven't met the crew I'm with. Pretty much everywhere we go, our life is in danger. Things didn't explode. That's pretty sneaky for us. That sounds horrible. Yes, please finish up whatever underhanded thing you're doing on the computer terminals at the Jedi Temple. Check out Redemption Podcast at www.redemptionpodcast.com. So this week in the Character Creation Forge, we're building a character very appropriate for fantasy warfare. It is the Field General. Uh Uh-huh. So what does the Field General do, Shane? So the Field General uh, leads the battle... Uh, but you know, like we talked about, like you got to be kind of close to things to make sure you keep your finger on the pulse. So the field general is there to lead more from the front, uh, might be on horseback, might be on foot, but, but the point is like making sure that the troops immediately around him are doing their absolute best. So in the command tent at first, making the decisions and then takes the battle themselves. Yeah. I think that's important is that they are a, uh, they are a commander and a leader of of the men themselves, right? They aren't necessarily the leader of a grand army. Um, they're responsible for making sure, like, these regiments, these companies do their jobs. Oh, this is the general who's like, uh, I, I don't want a promotion. That takes me away from my troops. This is the colonel, really, yeah. is, is where we're at here. <laughs> like, you have, a, you have an infantry command responsibility. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so what's the build? So the build is Battlemaster Fighter 16, Mastermind Rogue 3, Ranger 1. I like this one. So from fighter, you'll get a fighting style, defense or protection up to you. Second wind and action surge. Uh, you will also get combat superiority, which is what we're here for. Uh, we're going to take the martial adept feat, um, which will give us some extra maneuvers and an additional superiority die. You will end up getting seven D10 superiority dice. Uh, for a while, you'll have some D8s and the D6, and then at level 10, that will become a D10. I mean, with your three attacks per round, you can chew through those superiority dice very quickly. Oh, yeah. Uh, you will also know uh, 11 maneuvers out of the 16 possible maneuvers. Uh, but you're mostly here for Commander Strike, uh, which, of course, lets you uh, enable another um, character to make an attack with a reaction. Uh, great for helping rogues um, or anybody who smites. And then also you're here for Rally, which will give temp HP to your allies. Mm-hmm. You'll get six ASIs, uh, one of which you'll use to take the Martial Adept feat. And then you'll also take Inspiring Leader, which lets you start everyone off who's listening to you with some temp HP when they hear your rousing speech. And then at level seven, you get Know Your Enemy. And we talked a little bit about like champions, right? Like I think this is how you size up your uh, enemy generals as well as your enemy champions. Like you look across the battlefield and you see like, what is the make of that man or woman that, that opposes you? Literally, in this case, you'll know how many hit points they have. <laughs> if they have any fighter levels, what their CR is. <laughs> yeah, this is the scene where, you know, the, the general is sitting astride a horse and pulls out the spyglass. You know, and like scans the troops, the troops, and then wait a minute, what's that? Oh, who's that? A, a giant or this other person astride a horse? Hmm, what do I know of them from their armor or the way that they carry themselves? Right. 
Um, and the rule says you have to observe them outside of combat. Uh, I think if they're fighting far away on the battlefield and you're not in that combat, that should count well enough. Yeah, totally. So from three levels of Mastermind Rogue, we'll get expertise. You'll want persuasion uh, and intimidation, maybe history. You'll get a little bit of sneak attack. And Master of Intrigue uh, gives you proficiencies in the disguise kit and the forgery kit and game a gaming tool. This is uh, great for co-intel i like i like the idea that you're also a little bit of a scout you know the night before the battle you're like ah, i'm gonna either venture into town or maybe even infiltrate the enemy camp and see what i can find out yeah that turned out great for stonewall jackson huh <laughs> well <laughs> he was fighting on the wrong side so i think things yeah. turned out great for stonewall jackson <laughs> well but not for him like. <laughs> <laughs> no not so much uh, you can also mimic speech, uh, another kind of like, like we said, you know, like magic mouth and things like that, or you can boom out the voice of the enemy commander. Uh, that's handy. Nice. And then um, what you're really here for is master of tactics. So what you don't have a great use for as a um, battle master is your bonus action if you aren't two weapon fighting. So instead, we will uh, take master of tactics, which lets you use your bonus action to help an ally from 30 feet away uh, which is why of course you lead from the front <laughs> you lead from uh, within several yards exactly and then from one level of ranger you get favorite enemy you're going to take two kinds of humanoids and those will be whatever humanoids uh, are the majority of the rival nations that you expect to face yeah that might be goblins and orcs or it might be you know like actually humans mm -hmm. um i think if it's all humans you probably like pick two nations right something like that like in a like a birthright yeah yeah i mean that should be fine with a gm hey there aren't a, there isn't another race for me to pick give me something right. else um and then what we're really here for is natural explorer um so you'll take your local terrain for this uh probably grassland um, but this gives you expertise in intelligence and wisdom skills related to your favorite terrain. Um, but more importantly, it makes it easier for your groups to travel, to forage, to track enemies in your favorite terrain. You can't get lost, things like that. So very useful for an army on the march. If you're able to move a little bit faster and also aren't at risk of like screwing anything up because your field general is a, an expert in the terrain. Right. And, you know, change your terrain depending on exactly what you expect, right? Dark sun, take desert. If you're oh, sure. <laughs> dwarves fighting uh, goblins, then you'll probably take mountains. If you're a Viking, take tundra. Right, exactly. So in terms of leveling order, uh, we always start Rogue One. Then I think you go 11 levels of fighter. Like, go ahead, get that third attack. Um, and then... Uh, finish your rogue finish your fighter and then i think that uh natural explorer is just a nice capstone for this for this build uh so finish off ranger so ishan who is your field general my field general chooses as her uh natural explorer terrain uh swampland uh, and so she is a, an unconventional general in that she uh, rallies her troops through, you know, subterfuge and um, camouflage uh, and, and keeps them uh, alive and, you know, happy and keeps morale high, even in like these bleak and sort of dismal surroundings where you're basically eking out a living. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, marshals them to gather right at the tree line and, and when the enemy approaches uh they they charge suddenly uh onto the field with a quick hit not not like quick hit sorties of 
um, like skirmishing squads, but like a quick hit army uh-huh. who rushes in, uh, finishes the combat quickly, and then just disappears back into the swamp. That's definitely a thing. <laughs> Two, 2,000 troops marching quickly and quietly. I get it. <laughs> well, you know, well, you're here with your level one ranger. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. What about your field general? Pirate captain. Oh, that works for me. <laughs> yep. So uh, well suited to um, life on the deck of a ship, I think. Uh, we'll take favorite enemy. We'll be like at probably swamp um, or is sea. Is that actually coast? Uh, coast? Coast, yeah, coast. Yeah, so we'll take coast for our um, our natural explorer. But um, like, yeah, I think uh, I think a field general on a ship makes a lot of sense, uh, especially like you know, like you need to rally and inspire your troops. But when you board, you need to be like all business. Um, you need to like naval battles um, and, and naval attacks are actually hours long affairs. So you've got plenty of time to kind of like get the measure of practically every man on the other ship right like you can almost measure up a ship to to see like what their crew is like right and and pick your targets that way but um i I really like this build as like you know uh a rogue with just a little bit too much like um charm and not quite enough ready to go stick you with a sword um i think that 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 works really well for this Right. Uh, okay. Boarding party. Yep. This is necessary. Yep. And I'm leading from the front. <laughs> or actually, I'm shouting across the gap. <laughs> All right. Before we wrap up, we want to take a moment and thank our Patreon supporters. Yeah. Your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out our rewards at patreon.com slash total party thrill. So what do we have planned for next week's episode? We are continuing our series on using iconic monsters, and we are talking about how to use devils. And in the character creation forge, we're building the Fiend Slayer. Well, that's it for episode 233 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. Total Party Thrill is brought to you by D&D Beyond. D&D Beyond is the official digital toolset and game companion for Dungeons & Dragons. You can use it to build characters, track campaigns, run adventures, and do so much more. You should have been building a whole bunch of homebrew stuff. Oh, yeah? Uh, yeah, well, for Dark Sun. So, like, we, we've gotten some benefits from being members of our mercenary company, some magical benefits, and I've built them all as... Uh, as items that we can share across our campaign so everybody can pick like their plus one to a stat or you know like their epic boon i like this mechanically because like angelo who's running the dark sun game doesn't have a DD beyond account he's just one of the people that we have said plays a character in our campaigns and right. so you just build the thing and like everyone can now still use it in the dark sun game even though neither of us is running that campaign right exactly yeah like so you don't have to just take the plus two, uh, the plus two strength epic boon. You can be like Kalidmaz Fury if you'd like. Yeah, I dig it. So I did it. There's also lots of awesome content available for free, like the D&D basic rules and articles from writers like James J. Heck and videos from Todd Kenrick. And the team is always updating the site with new features. So improvements are always coming. So if that sounds interesting to you, check it out at dndbeyond.com. Dot com.